passage of scripture. It's kind of an extension of a message that I preached last Sunday, and I think that you'll, you know, kind of connect to it as well. Um, it's a familiar passage of scripture to many of us. It's about 16 verses, but it doesn't take long to read it here. And uh, so I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand in honored reading of scripture today. And it's found in Matthew's gospel, chapter number 26, 26. It's the 30th verse. This is the night of Jesus' betrayal. It says here, and when they had sung a hymn, 30th verse, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee." Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Could almost say how wrong he was. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter saith unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. And so you have to be reminded that this wasn't just Peter confessing that he would not deny the Lord. Then cometh Jesus with them, 36 verse. And this is usually where I begin at when I preach from this text. Then cometh Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him, finally you know where yonder is. Finally. I have waited my whole life. A revelation just hit me. Because as a child, my dad would say, it's over yonder. And I never found it, but it was in the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Sit you here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I wilt, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and he went away again and he prayed the third time, saying the same words. And then he cometh to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Now, oddly enough, it's very rare that we have an occasion in the epistles to actually get a little glimpse of the gospels. In this particular account here, there's actually a flash card related to it in the book of, Epi of Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrew people. We're going to read just two verses in the fifth chapter, verses 7 and eighth, and it adds a little bit of uh, depth to this particular text. And it says, And he saith also in another place, Thou, or oh, it's verses, yeah, seven and eight. I, I started six. Who in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears 
unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard and that he feared. It's a little bit of greater clarity once we kind of begin to expound upon this. The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is able to see uh, a little bit more into what took place in the garden that night. Jesus offers up prayers with strong crying and tears unto God that is able to save him from death. And he was heard and that he feared. And though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And today, I want to draw a little phrase out of the words that Jesus prayed to the Father concerning the cup. Concerning the cup. And I just ask you this question, and I want you to begin to ponder it, and then I'm going to add an addendum to it. But will you drink this cup? I just want you to just drop that in your spirit and think about that for a moment. Will you drink this cup? And what does that mean? We'll talk about it here in just a moment. And then I added this in my thoughts as I reflected on this passage, that our highest or our greatest objective in prayer should be submission to the will of God. That has to be our highest and our greatest objective when we, when we petition God in prayer is that we can submit to the will of God. Let's pray. Father, I love you, and I'm humbled to be in this house today. I truly am, God. By the testimonies that I've heard, Father, I certainly stand in awe of the great God Jehovah and what you're doing in the lives of men and women and how you're taking and using people around the world, Father, for a light and for a witness. And God, but I'm also, Father, reminded that you're doing something right here in Heber Springs, and you're doing something, Father, right here in the lives of the men and women that are gathered here, and they've come, Father, with a heart that's prepared to receive the Word of God. Father, there's a heightened sense of expectation in our church these days. And the people, God, have a, uh, have a determination in their heart that they're going to see and hear and respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. And we welcome your presence in this building today. Now, Father God, we understand there's a gift. That gift is the gift of preaching. Father, not the gift of a preacher, but the gift of preaching. And we petition you for it today. Because Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Father, I pray today, as Isaiah said, that you would make my tongue the pen of a ready rider. The hearts of the people would be prepared to receive, as James said, the engrafted word which is able to save the soul. And we trust you for these things. It's in Jesus' name and all God's children said amen and amen. And you can be seated. I'm so thankful for Jesus today. And when I say that, I mean that in, the, in a broad, as broad a sense as my experience and my understanding allows me to and I'm certainly thankful for that cross of Calvary in which he bore my sins and gave me access to the father and so grateful that you know the scripture uses the word propitiation it's an atoning sacrifice that allows you and I to have fellowship with the father because the redemptive price that was placed upon Adam because of his transgression had finally and sufficiently been met by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Come on, amen. I'm so grateful for that today. But I'm also grateful for the life of Jesus. Not just the, the, not just the sacrificial death, but the example that he gave us in his relationship to God. Because if there's anyone that you're going to emulate, if there's anyone that you're going to ascribe to follow, it should be Christ. And to pray that, that God... Uh, that, that shaped me and formed me. Paul said that we should be changed into the image of Jesus in a daily process of, of learning to die to ourselves and grow 
in our faith. And in this passage of Scripture, I've often, and I've meditated upon this passage many times, and I've preached on it several times over the, you know, the 23 years of being a pastor, and I always stand in awe when I take the time to journey with Jesus into Gethsemane. There are parts of Jesus' ministry that you just can't help but celebrate, and you do so with a smile. There are times when you think, I mean, how many of you have a mental uh, picture of what Jesus looked like? Come on now, listen, we all do, right? Everybody does, and it's all shaped differently from the pictures your grandmother had on their, her wall when you were a child to the Bible that you read. There's European Jesus. Uh, there is, I call him, there's California Jesus. That's the good-looking Jesus. Um, if you're African-American, there's a, there's a, there's a darker-skinned Jesus. Uh, finally, in our culture now, we've finally been exposed to that there's a Jewish Jesus, right? And, and so we've got a mental image in your mind of Jesus, and you picture when you read the Gospels and you're trying to formulate and follow his life as you contemplate it in your mind. You know, there's a lot of points of celebration, things that you just like, man, I just, just see that and be there. And this, I mean, from the raising of the dead to the, you know, to the miracles, to the walking on the sea or the calming of the sea. Come on now, the power of God prevailed in the life of Jesus. And you celebrate it. And when you read it, man, I'll tell you, put your Bible down and you'll get up and do your happy dance when you think about all the glory of God and the power of God and the things that he did. No wonder John said that if we were to attempt to write down everything that he said he did while he was here, the world itself with its uh, millions and millions of miles of a land Mass. He said the world itself could not contain the volume of books that would be written as we tried to describe to you all that he did. But there's a little window into his life that when you read it, there's a, there's a heaviness that begins to fall on you. And there's a somberness that begins to come because you, you somehow you try to identify with Jesus in that moment. And I don't know if there's anyone more, any passage more in that context than Jesus in the garden. That night, church family, if ever there was a moment, let me tell you, if ever there was a moment when all of eternity hung in the balance, it wasn't the cross. The cross had been settled. It was hanging in the balance that night when Jesus left the upper room. Everything has transpired as he had been foretold by the Holy Spirit of what would take place. Judas of Iscariot has already accepted the sop from the hand of Jesus. And the Bible says that Satan entered into him immediately and he went out to betray him. Context of that passage, questions are raised. Jesus' conversation deepens. Ultimately, after warning his disciples in the passage that we read that the shepherd would be smitten that night and the sheep would scatter, to which they did not believe. And we've talked about that many times. And Peter did not even believe Jesus' own record concerning his denial. He said, if anybody is willing to lay their life down for you this night, Peter said, it's me. But Jesus knew what would take place that night. That the shepherd would be smitten and the sheep would be scattered. And he leaves the upper room where they had partaken of the Passover meal. He goes down into what's known as the Kedron Valley. Kedron Valley. 
And it crosses, and one commentary said it was probably swollen from the late winter rains. And he goes to what's called a familiar place. And we have to try to picture this, and there's a lot going on that night. You have to understand, while Jesus is making his journey with his disciples from the upper room, somewhere adjacent to the temple, and crossing the Kidron Valley to go to the Mount of Olives, somewhere else in the darkness, in the house of Caiaphas, in the house of Annas the high priest, Judas is selling Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. So there's a lot going on, and Jesus is fully aware of what the morrow is about to take place. Though the men that are traveling with him, those 11, have no clue. They have no clue of what's going to take place that night and certainly not on the morrow. Jesus arrives at the, a, a, a place that the Bible tells us is a familiar place. You and I call it Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. If you journey to Israel today, there's a designated place. Actually, there are four that four distinct people group or faith groups uh, have designated as the original Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Jesus has journeyed there before. The gospel writers tell us it's a familiar place. One gospel writer tells us that Jesus resorted there oftentimes with his disciples. It was far enough away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem and the temple that would allow Jesus to find a place of solace and restoration and renewal. It was a place that he retreated to to get away from the masses of humanity to allow his own soul his own soul to just be reinvigorated this was not the first time he had prayed in the garden this was not the first time that he had gone there to petition God this was not the first time that he had gone there to say God I need your favor and I need your grace and I need your goodness and I need your rest and your relaxation but I've learned something about prayer that I have to have a, a familiar place created in prayer because all of my prayer is not always going to be comfortable. All of my prayer is not going to be restful and renewing and relaxing and refreshing and rekindling. When I think about church at times, there are times in church that you come here and I tell you it's renewing and it invigorates your soul and it puts a smile on your face and a little step. Come on, a dance in your step. But I'm telling you, there are some times in God's economy that you come into this solitary place, this place of a sanctuary, and God is really dealing with you. Come on, and, and it's not going to put a smile on your face, but it's going to put a determination in your heart that you can bend your will to the will of the fathers. And that, church family, is the inner struggle that every one of us are going through in our lives and sometimes at more prevalent moments. And some of you are probably there right now, the way it was with Jesus. Jesus, as we know, and I'll just backtrack for just a moment because I've got to share with you just a few things today. Because I just love this text. There's such depth to this text, and it behooves us to take the time to try to identify with it. Jesus got to the what we would say would be the outer gate of the garden. Most likely that was an enclosed garden. Gethsemane actually means olive press. We know that it was an olive, there was an olive grove there. And by reason of an olive grove, there would have been a house there that contained an olive press and in this Jesus uh, separated his disciples he left eight remember Judas has already fallen he's left eight at the gate 
The Bible doesn't give us much record of their dialogue. Perhaps they talk about the night's events, anticipating the morrow, talking about the things that had transpired in the upper room, or perhaps just the fatigue of the night caused them to sleep as well. But Jesus then separated the three, Peter, James, and John. The one the Bible has given us other accounts where he separated them. He separated them and went into the home of Jairus, the, uh, whose 12-year-old daughter had died. And they stood amazed as Jesus said, Talitha, come I, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And a little girl dead rose up off of her mom and dad's bed. They were privy to that type of glory and the power of God. They also had gone up with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they saw Jesus transfigured where the word transfiguration there means a transfiguration from the inside out. See, they had only seen Jesus on the outside, but now they could see him on the inside out. And the glory of God that was hidden underneath his humanity, the divinity, began to expose itself. And they were so moved by that moment that they just fell there on the mountain. But now this one is different. This one is different. Another transfigure, when he separates those eight disciples from the three, he takes them farther into the garden. And when he does, the scripture says another transfiguration takes place, but it's not like the one that took place on the mount just a few days earlier. But rather this time, Jesus' entire countenance begins to be altered. If you've ever studied this out in the depth of this, the scripture tells us that he is exceedingly sorrowful. There's such a weight and a heaviness that begins to come over him. You have ever had a moment of anxiety in your life that literally caused you to shake? A moment where you couldn't even fully describe what you were going through? That was the moment that was there with Jesus that night. And he was trusting his three closest disciples to watch with him because he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Even to the degree that the Son of Man slash the Son of God did not know if he would make it out of the garden because of the weight of the moment that was pressing down upon him. How unique it is that the word Gethsemane means olive press because somewhere in that garden there was a rotating stone that would crush the exterior of the olive and there would be three pressings to release the prized oil inside the heart of the olive. Isn't it amazing that on that night Jesus would pray three times in Gethsemane as the hand of God would come upon him to crush his will so that the will of God would would be done the power of that moment resounds in my spirit today and I'm telling you church family what's waiting on many of us in the kingdom of God is a Gethsemane moment What's waiting on many of us to arrive at the place where we have peace in our life is when we learn to accept the will of God for our lives and so in this passage of Scripture, then Jesus goes a stone's throw. And all the times I've talked about that as a pastor, isn't it amazing that a stone's throw can separate you from the place of your sorrow and the place of the struggle that will lead to your survival? I didn't say your victory. That victory would not be fully pronounced until the resurrection morn. I've learned sometimes I just have to survive the moment. And I need the help and the grace of God to be able to do so. And a stone's throw away, Jesus prays. In this prayer, you and I pray. He says these words. Note the words of the Son of God. He says, O Father, if it be possible, the very one that said, 
With God, all things are possible. Now in a garden called Gethsemane, he finds himself wrestling with God for the will of God for his life. If it be possible, let this. He knew what that cup contained. He knew what that cup contained for the suffering of humanity. And he knew of the pain of separation that he would endure when his father would turn his back on him on the cross on the morrow. And Jesus is so moved by it that he's actually praying, Father, if there be any other way. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Have you ever prayed like that? I have. I've searched many times for another route, another way another means to escape the will of God. But the distinguishing point in this prayer in the life of Jesus that all of us have got to see, we've got to see this because we're going to need this in order for us to be conformed to the will of God. Nevertheless, come on, (laughs) nevertheless, Father, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Jesus then goes back to his disciples and he finds them sleeping. And the Bible tells us we think of them sleeping only because of negligence. But if you put this all together by comparing all four gospel accounts, especially the synoptic gospels and Luke, they're sleeping out of sorrow themselves. Literally, they have cried themselves to sleep is what's taking place. The way I remember the night that my mother passed. and that When you have prayed and you have cried out and you have wept, there is a heaviness that comes upon you. A heaviness. You are literally exasperated. These three disciples were exasperated. And Jesus goes and he awakens them and says, Simon Peter, could you? You promised me just an hour earlier that you would die for me. Couldn't you watch for me? But one hour. And then Jesus returns to prayer. And note this time there's a change in the words that he prays. And this time he says, but if there's not, if this is it, if this is it, then God give me the strength to endure and to drink it. Paraphrase. I love what Luke's gospel records. Luke says when he went back the second time, he was in more agony. Did you know there is an agony in prayer? Did you know that all prayers not, Lord bless me, thank you Jesus, I got the main parking spot at Walmart. Come on, sometimes prayers about that place where God, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go there. I don't want to have to go through this. But God, if there's no other way and this is the will of God, I'm tired of trying to do it on my own, God. I want your will, not my will. I put my emotions, I put my life, my choices on the altar and I crucify it there so that when I get up, God, I can be who you call me to be. And that's what you and I can glean from this passage of Scripture. And the Bible says, in that moment, unseen to anyone else, but until the Spirit of God reveals it unto Luke, an angel appears to him. The power of prayer, many times you didn't know what gave you the strength to make it through that moment, what gave you the courage to get back up and to face that situation that you wanted to run away from, but God gave you the strength. There was an angel of God, God dispatched. Isn't that powerful today to know that God dispatched an angel? I got, I got a word today just real quickly. Jacob, you know why you had courage and a smile on your face in a mosque in Thailand? It's because God sent an angel around you to breathe over you and Encourage you and to give you the hope and the strength to continue to do the will of God. And Jesus then goes back to his disciples and finds them sleeping once again. 
Jesus is always the teacher. He reproves them. I'm having to go so fast over this, but there's a couple of points I have to make here today. And he says, you know, the spirit indeed is willing. Who's he talking to in that moment? Is he talking to Peter? Is he talking to you? Or is he even talking about himself? Or is it a compilation of all three? But the reality is your spirit desires to do the will of God. Your flesh oftentimes revolts at the will of God. And somewhere in the middle is your soul, the mind, and the will, and the emotions. And from there, you got to make your decision. And in that moment, Jesus returns the third time, and he prays. And he says, Father, let me drink this cup, and let me drink it to the very bottom. And did you know when he gave up the ghost on Calvary's cross, and commended his hands into the Father, his spirit into the Father's hands. It was there that that cup, that bitter cup of his suffering, had finally been shaken out, and he had drunk the entirety of the suffering of God. It's a powerful picture, something that you and I we strive to learn from. I want to give you just a couple of thoughts that we can make first from the life of Jesus. Let me just say this very real, very quickly. There were three pressings that were necessary to produce the olive oil. There were three pressings of Jesus, the crushing of the outer man to release the willingness of the Spirit to fulfill the will of God. The exterior is not just the carnal flesh, but sometimes it's the fleshly appetite. And in that moment of time, through the analogy or the metaphor of a, an olive press, is the picture of Jesus himself being crushed to accomplish the will of God. I want to say this about Jesus because I want to give, before I make this real personal to you, because I got a couple of bullet points that I got to drop in your spirit today, I've got I've to give him glory. I want to talk very quickly. That was a very real temptation. Let me tell you, so what do you mean that very real temptation? There was a very real temptation present in that garden with him. You know what it was called? It was called the back gate. There was a ba- if there was a front gate, there was a back gate. And in the night, he could have easily walked all the way through the garden and disappeared into the night. It was a very real temptation for him to look for another way out. But let me tell you, sometimes, church family, escapism is not the will of God for our lives. Now, our our Western American mindset thinks if it's not good for us, then it must not be of God. But sometimes, I'll get there in a moment of time, sometimes abiding where you're at is the only way to fulfill the will of God. A very real temptation. He could have escaped. He could have called for angels to defend him, but he did not. Number three, accepting the will of God for his life became his objective in prayer. The cross was the will of God. He said it, to this end I have been born. That was the will of God for his life. From the time that he would come into the earth, he he was destined to die. We've said it many times, he was born to die. He knew that that was his purpose from God. But when he got right to the precipice of having to drink the cup of suffering, his flesh is revolting, but his spirit is still desiring to be pleasing to God. Let's go a little bit farther. No one could actually pray Jesus to achieving that objective. Now, I'm going to talk about that in a moment, so we got to touch on that. No one could actually pray him, even though he asked those men to pray with him. They could pray with him, and they could pray for him. But listen to this. The bending of your will to the Father's will must be produced by the crushing of your flesh in your own personal prayer time. 
Oh, I'll get to that in a moment. Number five, just giving honor to Jesus. Little nuggets that I uh, just discovered when I rejourneyed through uh, the, the Garden of Gethsemane again. We could say and we could be theologically accurate, Jesus died in the garden. He died to his flesh's desire. And his fleshly desire was to avoid the will of God. And Jesus put it to death so that he could die on the cross on the morrow. And you say, Pastor, man, I, and I tell you what, I celebrate Jesus. As a matter of fact, i got to celebrate him real quickly. Before I turn the page and give you five things real quickly, nuggets that God put in my heart about this passage that direct, directly relate to you and your life, I want to say this today. If Jesus performed a miracle and we got to witness it, we would celebrate it. Come on, if somebody with a broken limb was miraculously healed or a blind eye was open, we would celebrate it. But I'm telling you, we need to celebrate the crushing of Christ in Gethsemane because had need not crushed the appetite of his flesh in that garden called Gethsemane, there would have never been a morrow, there had never been a Calvary, there had never been give up the ghost, there had never been the death of the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The book that we now call Complete Alpha and Omega would be Alpha because there would have been no ending. But because the Son of God bent His will to the will of the Father in a garden called Gethsemane, now you and I have access to an eternal, holy God that we can call Father, Father, the way He did in the garden. Hallelujah today. i got to celebrate Him today. Man, I had somebody ask me, uh, a close, Alyssa's good friend you'll meet next week. We were watching a little bit of a, you know, I like to watch some African-American preachers a little bit. I call them, that's what you call them, I call them black preachers. And, you know, they, they, they got some rhythm to their preaching. And she was just joking. She said, that's how you preach. I said, yes, that's how I preach. I can preach like that. I said, I'm not named Leroy Brown for nothing. I said, my problem is I'm hanging out a bunch of white folk. They ain't got no rhythm. I'm just telling you, I'm just calling it like I see it. Man, if somebody climbed out and got on an organ in here today, this place might erupt in here. Because I just think about Jesus, and I think about this moment, and I think about, because not only do I think about uh, for eternity, but I think about if he had not did this, I would never have the example that I need when I find myself in a similar situation. That I don't want to endure, and I want to give up, and I want to go another route. But then I see Jesus. And I say, if he did it, come on, I can do it. He'll give me the strength. Here's our application. Five things. Drop it in your spirit real quickly today. Number one, critical moments in your life will define who you are. Did you hear that? Critical moments. Jesus asked his disciples to pray with him for one hour. You'll watch some people on Sunday night when they ought to be at church, 60 minutes. Y'all didn't catch that either. It's just a tick, tick, tick. 60 minutes, one hour, one hour, Jesus and all he had done up until that moment in ministry for God, who he would become would be determined by how he could endure that moment. Let me say this to you again real quickly. Everything can come down to a few minutes or a few hours of critical decision making in your life and subsequent submission to the will of God. And I'm telling you, that's why you got it. When you know you're in that moment, you better, you better get wherever you got to get to get to that moment so that you get through it properly and stay and remain in the will of God. Number two, you must accept the fact 
that sometimes suffering is the will of God for our lives. Now, I know, I know that y'all wasn't going to shout me down on that one right there, and that's okay because there's not anybody in here, including the preacher, that likes to suffer. There's not anybody here that, that wants to, will, but I'm telling you, there are times in your life, listen, I believe in deliverance, I believe in healing, I believe in the power of God, I believe in everything that he purchased on the cross, but there are times that suffering, whatever suffering relates to you, it can be, all, it can be a pantheon of things, we know that, but there are times and there are moments and sometimes it's even a season in your life that that's the will of God for your life. And notice what it said about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus learned obedience. You can learn and find your will being bent to the will of God while you're enduring suffering. God can take it and work through you in the midst of your plight and the midst of your trauma. Let me say this. You cannot always avoid the difficult places in life. That's good right there. Let me move on. Because i got to close. I'm already on borrowed time. Number three, many times, this is the truth. You already know the will of God that you claim to be wrestling with. You already, it's like many times we're saying, oh, if I just knew the will of God. Most times you already know the will of God. But you're unwilling to accept the will of God. And that's what Gethsemane will prove for you. You're either going to accept the will of God and bend your will to the Father's will or you're going to look for that back gate. Or you're going to always going to be crying out for an angel to deliver you from that. Now think about this. An angel could have delivered him, but rather it preserved him. And I think about the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. Jace asked me, was I going there? I might as well. John chapter 17, Jesus prayed to the Father concerning his disciples. And he said, Father, I pray that you don't take them out of the world. He didn't pray that God would deliver us from them. He said, but I pray that you would keep them. Preserve them. God can be with you in times of trauma and sorrow and difficulty. And actually, there are times that it can be some of the sweetest moments of personal fellowship and grace that you'll ever know in your life. Too many times, our prayer is an attempt to force our will on the Father's will. Let me say that one more time. I've got to say that. Too many times our prayer is an attempt to force our will on the Father's will. We must learn from Jesus, not my will, Father. Not what I want, not what's good for me, not what exalts me in my flesh, but God, your perfect will be done in my life. Number four, number four, we are way too dependent upon other people's prayer, counsel, and support. Now, I believe it, and I'm going to pray with you here in a moment. But I want to say this one more time. You need a familiar place that you've resorted to in prayer. So when that moment of crisis comes, prayer won't be an unfamiliar place. Can I, that's good right there, isn't it? And so let me say it one more time, and let me just connect you with this real quickly. We've become, in the Western church, quick to pick up the phone and ask somebody else to pray for us. We need a prayer chain. We need a prayer list. A, we have a prayer team. What about you praying? What about you, a stone's throw away, getting alone with God, working this thing out? I'm going to tell you today, your will will not bend to the will of the Father by me laying hands on you. Come on, and I'm going to pray with people, and I believe in supporting people in prayer, but only when you get a stone's throw away. When you get that place of isolation, separation, can you really be honest with God? 
Because, see, when I'm around, you're not going to be honest with God because you're going to be real spiritual in that moment. But, see, when you're alone with God, you'll be vulnerable in that moment. And it's then that you can expose the issues that you're really dealing with. And then when you expose the issues that you're really dealing with, then you can get to the place where you can actually surrender to God. Man, that's a good word today. And lastly, number five. And I'm going to ask Aaron to join me on the platform. And I want to say how much we appreciate Aaron. He comes up every Sunday. And sometimes on Sunday nights, he plays for an hour while we're praying. We appreciate him so much. Number five, dying to self is not easy. Often it is agonizing. Did you catch that? I used the word that the gospel writer used. Being in agony. Dying to self is not easy. It's agonizing. It can be traumatic. Jesus' soul was sorrowful. But listen, to be obedient to the will of God for your life will bring a peace and a contentment that you have to have to move forward in life. Now, let me say this real quickly. You know, the old psalm said, Weeping endureth through the night, but joy cometh in the morning. Now, let me just be honest with you. Joy didn't come in the morning for Jesus. Joy came later. Now, the writer of Hebrews says there was joy, the joy that was set before him. That's what it says. The writer says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him, notice this, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of the glory of God. Let me tell you, sometimes you emerge from prayer. I'm telling you, I don't believe that Jesus emerged from this moment of prayer just dancing and rejoicing and celebrating. No, it was still heavy. It was agonizing. It was sorrowful. It was traumatic. But what had taken place in that moment is the balance had shifted inside of him. His flesh that desired to revolt had been mortified and crucified. He had wrapped his mind around that he was going to submit to the will of God, and God gave him a peace to arise for the hours at hand. What a powerful picture in the life of Jesus that I think is so necessary for us to have a snapshot of it in our heart and mind because you're going to be there at some point in your life. I'm not going to say that every day of your life you're going to live in the weightiness of Gethsemane. I don't, I don't think so. But I do think that every one of us at some point in time will find ourselves in a place when you want to go there because it's easier, it's not as demanding, it's not as challenging, it doesn't as require as much sacrifice or submission, but you know God is calling you to be here. And it's hard. It's a hard place to stay at. God has given you the assurance that this is where you need to be. I'll tell you what, it's only that tipping point moment in prayer that will give you the courage to say, you know what, Father, not my will, not my will, Father, but your will be done. I want to ask you to stand up with me today. I know I probably preached. Let's see. No, that's not bad. Let me say this. Prayer is that place. Prayer is that process where you, like Jesus, are heard in God's throne room. Isn't that powerful? It says that he was, a, he was heard because he was a son. With strong crying and tears, Jesus prayed. In your sorrow, 
in your discomfort, and in your suffering, let me say this. He will strengthen you. And you, like Jesus, can emerge from the garden submissive to the Father's will. I want to encourage you today. Drink the cup that God's given you to drink. Nobody can drink it for you. Drink it. If God's given it to you, what is that cup? That cup is the submission to God's will. Here's where you and I are today. Here's where we are. Here's who we can be for each of you that may find yourself in Gethsemane. You understand what I mean by that? You're at a place. It's a tough moment in your life. You've looked for ways out, and you just hadn't found it. And submission is the only thing that you can do. You know what role we can play with you today for just a moment? We can be that angel. We can be that person that comes alongside and says, man, I'm praying for you. I'm trusting God with you. But let me tell you this. You're going to have to continue to press this in your own time until your fleshly appetite is fully crushed and perfect submission flows out. You're going to have to do that. Don't rest entirely upon a prayer at the altar to fully determine whether or not your heart is fully pliable to God. You better find that place. I call it a stone's throw away where you can truly be alone with God. Our heads bowed and our eyes closed. It's 12.05.